your sword or grab your Bible this morning, turn it on, whatever you need to do, and find your place in 1 John chapter 5, as we're going to bring this great study of 1 John that we've been walking through for the last few weeks together to a close this morning. So go ahead and find your place there. If you need a Bible, there's a copy of God's Word in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you, or you can follow along the screen here in just a few minutes. And before we jump in, I don't know how it is well the song we just sang lands on you this morning, but i got to tell you, I can rarely sing that song with you, with God's people, without it just tearing me up. I, I, I was standing there, I was thinking, that song, It Is Well With My Soul, that's the heart song of every born-again child of God. You know that? I don't know what you bring in here this morning or what the condition of your circumstances is this morning. And you may not be able to say, my circumstances are well. But in Christ, you can say, it is well with my soul because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a unique privilege for the people of God. And I guarantee you, when Horatio Spafford, the man that wrote that song, penned the words as he stood on a boat out in the North Atlantic Sea, where just a few hours earlier his children had all died in a boat, a shipwreck, and he gets to that spot in the ocean, he wasn't saying, everything's good, all my life's going great. He could not say that. But he said, it is well with my soul. Man, I hope this morning, you can leave here this morning, and you can say with great confidence, because of who Jesus is, it is well with my soul. Because here's the reality, and here's what we're going to be looking at at 1 John this morning, is something that's common to every single person in this room, you, me, everybody here, is we live in a world of great uncertainty, right? I mean, you wake up every morning, and maybe some more than others, but you're confronted with a lot of uncertainties about your day and about your life. Maybe you're confronted with the uncertainties about your health. There's something facing you and you don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's, to be honest, why we spend thousands of dollars every year on health insurance because we don't know how it's going to go with our health. The reality is we don't know if we even have tomorrow on this earth. We don't know how many more days the Lord chooses to give us breath. We don't know. That's why we spend a lot of money on life insurance. We don't know what our last day is going to be on earth. Maybe you're in the middle of some relationships right now and you have to say, I'm very uncertain about the status or the health of this relationship. I'm uncertain about the future of this relationship. We live in a world of uncertainty. Or maybe you're uncertain about your job or your desire for a job or your future in your current employment. Maybe you're uncertain like me about your investments. It's been a rough few weeks for the stock market, right? We're uncertain about our investments in the future and these things that are constantly uncertain. Maybe you're just all wrapped up in the uncertainties because an election is coming on Tuesday. And let me just give you something that's certain. Our future's not in a politician, Republican or Democrat. Vote. Trust God. We live in a world of uncertainties. And even as I say that, something's playing in your mind that is gripping you with uncertainty right now. And it's left you troubled. And, and the we, we live in a world of uncertainty. So the Apostle John, throughout this letter called 1 John, five chapters of a letter from John the Apostle to a group of churches and believers, is writing to a people, a group of people who have been gripped with uncertainty. 
There's some false teachers, you remember, and we've talked about this. They've kind of come in, and they've, they've started espousing and teaching all these lies about false claims about who God is. So now they're kind of uncertain. Well, what, what's the nature of God? What's God really like? And they've come in, and they've taught some uncertainties and untruths about what it really means to know God and what it really looks like to know God. And they've taught distorted understandings of what love is and what life is and how you deal with these things. And they're just kind of wrestling. They're, they're gripped in some uncertainty. So John has given us five great chapters so that we would have some certainties in our lives as believers to build our lives upon. And we're going to look at some of those certainties. In fact, this morning we're going to look at five certainties that he ends this letter with because here's the difference between us as believers. We live in an uncertain world, but we can build our lives on things that are absolutely certain because God declares them to be so. That's the difference. So at the end of the letter, I'm going to just start reading around verse 11. I'm going to read through the end of the letter, through verse 21. You can follow along. It's going to be on the screen, or just follow along your Bibles there. And as I read this, I want your ears to be attuned to all the times that John says something like, we know. Or when John says something like, this is our confidence, Over and over and over to a group of very uncertain, shaky people, he gives a ton of certainties. And man, they are so good for us this morning to be able to say, no matter what, because of the certainties of God, it is well with our soul. So just kind of follow along with me. John writes, I'm going to begin in verse 11. The Bible says this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has the life but he who does not have the son of God does not have the life what a clear statement verse 13 is kind of the hinged verse of really the whole book and we've referred to this verse a lot if you don't have it memorized you probably do by now John says, okay, I'm nearing the end of this letter. I've just given you five chapters. And just to remind you, here's why I've been writing. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He primarily is writing to believers. He says, I've written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 14, he says, this is the confidence, there it is again, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and and, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Sake of time, skip on down to verse 18, I'll pick up the other verses in just a minute. Verse 18 says, we know that the one who is born of God, or we know that the one who is born of God sins, that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power, or in the control, or in the lap of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know 
that the Son of God has come. That's incarnational language. God has taken on flesh. God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him His true and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. And then he ends with somewhat of an obscure statement. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So what John does here is he kind of gives us this big truth that we're going to build on this morning that's going to kind of guide, and then we're going to give you some subsequent truths under it. But here's the big truth is this. Authentic believers live with daily confidence in the certainties declared by God. In other words, in a world of great uncertainties that we all agree upon and that we all share, as believers, authentic believers can live with daily confidence in certainties. And where do those certainties come from? God declares some things to be absolutely true. And this morning we're going to look at some of those things God declares to be absolutely true. And when John writes this, I couldn't help but think, John walked with Jesus for three and a half years and all the parables and all the teachings that Jesus taught. John was there for all of them. And just reverberating in the back of almost as he writes this is that parable about there's a man who builds his house upon the rock. And man, the storms come and the waves come and everything comes. But that house stands firm because it's built upon the things that are certain, the rock. But then there's another one who builds their house upon the sand, the uncertainties of life. It's like that parable is just going off in the head of John as he writes this. Listen, beloved, I want us to be a people who builds our, our house on the rock of the certainties of what God declares to be true. So he ends this letter full of great love for these people and he declares at least five things that are certainties that we know and that we can build our lives upon. I'm going to give you those this morning, make some application. Absolute certainty number one is this. John says, we can know that we have eternal life. We could know. It says in verse 13 again, just go back and look at it. He says, these things, John says, I have written. In other words, there's, there's a way that you can know with confidence that you're having eternal life. Because John says, I have written an entire book of tests or of examples for you to take your life and then put your life up against the truths that I've said and say, okay, how's it shaking down? What are the evidences in your life that God lives in you? There are evidences that you can hold on to and know for certain. These things are true in my life. Therefore, God lives in me by faith. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you are having present tense eternal life. And we spent a few weeks ago, we kind of talked about this concept of eternal life. John pulls this thread throughout. It's really unique to John. Other writers in the Bible refer to it, but rarely. John talks about it a lot, this idea of eternal life. Remember, what is it? Jesus helped us, John 17, 3. Jesus is explaining, and he says this, praying to the Father, he said, this is eternal life. Well, this ought to clear it up. Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they, speaking of us, may know you, the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life, according to what Jesus said, is this. Is knowing God and sharing in his very life now. 
Don't miss that. If you've been reading through 1 John, all the times you come to eternal life, eternal life is not a destination that we hope to arrive at someday. Eternal life is a quality of life that we enter into now by faith, the very life of God himself. Wow. And John says, listen, if eternal life is the very life of God dwelling in us, the God who is love, and the God who is light, and the God who is life. Listen, here, here's the argument. If that God is dwelling in you by faith, and you've been born of Him by faith, then your life will look markedly different. Your life will bear evidence of the God who dwells within you. So that there can be this assurance that yes, God lives in me because he's producing some things in my life that could only be God. Versus a life of maybe holding on to some experience that happened 20 years ago or some prayer that was prayed 20 years ago or some faint memory of some action that you took. John is saying you can know with absolute confidence you know God and have eternal life, his life in you by what's going on in your life now. Now. Rarely does the Bible ever say Determine whether or not you truly know God by something that happened 20 years ago. The declaration of the Bible is look at your life now. And if this God dwells in you by faith now, the evidence of his life in you will come out. This river of the very life of God will have springs that overflow your life into the lives of other people. You can know that you have this eternal life, the very life of God. He gives three tests really quick. There's, there's other ones, and these are evidences that John writes about through this letter. He said these things have been written. Okay, let me just quick review. He, he talks about one is the truth test. In other words, evidence that God dwells within us is the reality of what we believe about Jesus. 1 John 5.1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him forever and he in God. In other words, we don't get to dream up our version of Jesus. <laughs> we don't get to just come up with some version of God that we like and fit it into our box. He has revealed himself and made himself known through his Son. God has made himself known through this word. He has made it known to us. He's opened our eyes. And one of the evidences that God dwells in you is a right view of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And to continually stray from that and build your own version of who God is is evidence that the true God doesn't dwell within you. So there's this truth test John talks about. He, he was surrounded, by the way, by these false teachers that had kind of built their own version of God. And then they claimed to know God. And John's like, it doesn't work that way. You don't get to, you don't get to invent God. So there's the truth test. And then he says there's this obedience test. In other words, does our, is our life characterized and consistent with our obedience to what God says? In other words, the pattern of our life is demonstrating... I have a new master. <laughs> Somebody else is in charge of my life. I, I don't lead my life and say, okay, God, you got to jump on for the ride. No, 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 no. God, you're in charge. 
And he says it's this obedience test that we obey what God says. 1 John 2, 4-5, through 5, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, does not demonstrate a life, not of perfection, not of dotting all the T's. That's not the spirit of it. The spirit of it is, I have a new master and I love him, and his will is best for me. Therefore, I'm going to hold on to his word and his commandments, and my life will be characterized by God. Your will is supreme in my life. He says, does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. First John 2, verse 5 says, but whoever keeps his word, and remember that word keeps means to treasure and to hold in high regard and to cling to. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, John says, we know who are in him. One of the evidences of knowing God is a pattern of, man, I want my life to be conformed to the life of God. I, he's in charge. His word is the final authority. It's an evidence that the God of the universe dwells inside of us. John says, look, you can look back over your life, and if there's, I didn't say it was perfect, but a consistent pattern of, man, my life has a new leader. My life is, is built on what God says. That is evidence that God dwells within you. And then he says there's the love test, how we love one another. John's argument's pretty simple. He says, listen, if the God who is love doesn't operate by a standard of love out there somewhere. He is the standard of love. He defines what love is in his very being. If that God dwells within you, then your life is going to be characterized, watch this, by a God-like love for other people. He says it this way. He says, we know that we have passed out of death. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. John says, so there's these evidences to, to take your life. I've written about these, John says, so that you can know that the God of the universe is dwelling within you and his life is flowing out of your life. And here's some of the evidences of it. Is that true of you? And I really hope and pray after 10 weeks of walking through 1 John that some of us come to the end of this letter who are truly born again and we have a renewed confidence to rest in the finished work of Christ and we can say I know that God lives within me because of these evidences in my life they're there and I also know there's got to be some who if you were really honest would look at your life and say some of those in fact hardly any of those things are in my life And it's at that point that the beauty of Jesus should become crystal clear. And you say, how do those things become true in my life? There is a surrender and a repentance and a clinging by faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray God's doing that work in us through this great letter. So he describes these evidences. He says we can know that we have eternal life. Now, he says there's several others. So let's look at a few others. There's a couple other absolute certainties that John gives us here. Absolute certainty number two is this. Begins in verse 14, he says, here's the big idea. We can know God hears our prayers. We can know that God is hearing my prayer. Little old me. That the God of the universe is hearing. Listen to what he says, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him. 
If you write in your Bibles, that word before is just a really important word. It's often used with the idea of face-to-face. Your Bibles may say approach him. That's probably a better translation. In other words, it's it's the idea of understanding approaching the very face of God. It's this beautiful Old Testament analogy picture of, remember the Old Testament when God would manifest his presence in the the temple or the Holy of Holies. Not that God lives in a temple, that's not the point, but he manifested his presence there. And it was so holy, only one person could go into the presence of God once a year, the great high priest. And they had to go through all these ritualistic things because God is holy. But now in Christ, the veil has been torn and every child of God has complete, open, unhindered access to the very face of God. Did y'all hear that? That's better than the lottery, man. The God of the universe who at present is holding every atom in place so that we don't disintegrate and is holding the cosmos in place that are light years away from us and is lovingly holding all that together and holds every cell in your body together by his goodness and by his grace is constantly has an ear attuned to what you and I have to say. Crazy. And John says... Listen, your life is full of uncertainties and you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon and you don't know how that relationship's going to turn out and there's all these things that you don't know. But John says in the midst of that, listen, there is a confidence which we have before God that if we ask anything according to his will, and you say, I kind of would like it better if it just said anything. That according to his will kind of messes me up, Right? By the way, the most unloving thing God could ever do is give you everything you want. And all the parents in the room said amen. The most loving thing God can do is say, no, 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 I hear you, but I will never act in your life outside of my perfect will for you. There are some things God will do in our lives, according to Scripture, as best I can understand, when we ask. That for whatever reason, He seems to choose to not do if we don't ask. But He never acts outside of perfect justice. He never acts outside of perfect love. And He never acts outside of His perfect will for us. Therefore, we can cry out and trust that God, here's the way it looks to me. And here's the way I hope this is going to turn out. And here's what I'm praying for this person. But at the same time, I would be crazy to want anything other than your perfect will. He says, ask. Come. Seek my face. The face of God is open to every believer and not because you had a good day yesterday. And not because you're doing your Christian duty, if you will, and you're at church this morning and you say, well, God loves me more because I'm here. Do you understand? The only way you have a right to stand before the God of the universe is through the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And by the way, by faith you are in Him and you will never not be in Him. And he will never be anything less than perfectly righteous. Isn't that good? That doesn't change. That's a certainty to build your life on. And then John goes on. He says, this is a present reality. This is an ongoing reality. This is a present tense verb in verses 14 and 15. I get to say it one more time because we're almost finished with 1 John. Verb tenses matter. Remember that? 
It's present tense, meaning it never changes. It's ongoing. Present reality. It's an expression of the eternal life which we currently possess, the very life of God, to approach the very presence of God, meaning no matter what comes into our life, no matter what situation we face, we are a breath away from calling out to the very presence of God. Constantly. In Christ. And then he goes on and he gives an example of it in verse 16. And I skipped these verses earlier. I'm going to look at them here for just a second. He says, okay, so this... This capacity to cry out to God about anything according to his will. It's as if John says, okay, let me give you an example. Verse 16, he says, okay, let me give you an example of your intercession in the lives of other people, particularly people you love. He says, verse 16, okay, so let's say, for example, if anyone sees his brother or sister in Christ, the 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 reference here is to brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, anyone sees a true brother or sister in Christ committing a sin, and, and the idea of committing here is not just little random sins, but it has given themselves over to a pattern of sin that's unhealthy for them, and you see them going down a direction that's not good. As a parent, think about maybe your kids, and it'll make sense to you. And I'm telling you, as a parent, I've read this verse. I can't tell you how many times in my life this past week as if God opened my eyes to say, do you get what I'm saying here? We have a responsibility and a privilege in the sanctification process in one another's lives. He says, if anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin, not leading to death, He's going to talk about sins that lead to death. And he's talking about unbelievers, the sin that leads to death. That is just final, total rejection of who God is. Probably alluding to these false teachers there. He says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about believers who are, who are making some poor choices. You see them headed down a road that you know is not good for them. John says this, cry out to me on their behalf. John says, speaking for God, you ask me on their behalf, verse 16, he shall ask... And God will for him give life to those who are committing this sin, not leading to death. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation. That's not what life means here. That's not the idea. But it is the process that God has given us the privilege and the gift and the responsibility of constant, unrestricted access to his presence. And when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family members in Christ headed down a path or going down a direction that we know is sinful and destructive, God says, come to me. Ask on their behalf and I will give life to them. Isn't that incredible? There are times the Bible calls us in one another's lives to go and speak into the situation. Galatians chapter 6, 1. If you see a brother falling, you see a brother in sin, go to them in a spirit of gentleness so you too won't be tempted. But you go to them and speak truth. Take that truth and pair it with this truth and says, before you do that, your attitude ought to be before the face of God. God, intervene in my brother's and sister's life. You've given me the privilege of interceding for them. And I'll tell you, parents... This is a verse you cling to on behalf of your kids when you see them making some decisions and you know it's grieving your heart and they claim to know God and you grieve and God says, hey, I see it, I know it, it is wearing you out, bring it to me. Bring it to me. What do we normally do 
when we see a brother or sister headed down an unhealthy path. Sometimes we want to gossip. Sometimes we want to be prideful about it. This verse says, no, 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 before God, out of love and the responsibility we have for one another, you take their name before the throne of God. And then you be prepared to do what God calls you to do in their life for their good. Beautiful passage here. So he says, we, we, we can know that we have eternal life. He says, we can know that God hears our prayers. Let me give you a few more in the time we have remaining. Absolute certainty number three is this. We can know victory over sin. We can practically know in our daily lives victory over sin. Verse 18. John writes, he says, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. The word practice there is the efforts of the translators to try to capture the spirit of what John is saying. John is not saying the people of God never sin. You know that. But what he is saying is in the life of a born-again believer who is born of God, there can be any sin that we can commit under heaven, right? You know that. You're capable of any sin under heaven. But a child of God cannot continually, without the work of the Spirit, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, without a heaviness of heart, cannot continue in a pattern of open rebellious sin before God. And God not lovingly discipline and correct and chasten and come after Him in love. Can't. He says we know no believer can dwell there, John says. Why? Listen, this is so good. I'm reading this from the NLT because it captures the translation so well. Middle of verse 18. For God's Son holds them, or us, securely. The word is keep. Just as a child of God, because of the God in us, we keep His word and we cling to His word. At the same time, the Son of God is keeping you. You hear that? And the righteous Son of God is holding to you because you're trusting in Him. For the Son of God holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. Man, that's awesome. That means in life, child of God, we're going to have slip-ups. We're going to blow it. We're going to fail. We're going to make some bad choices. We're going to sin. And we're going to sin royally. But sin no longer is our master. And you do not battle daily sin in your life by focusing on sin. You focus on the one who has defeated sin. And you live this life not trying to gain a place of ultimate victory, but from a place of ultimate victory that Jesus has crushed the head of the evil one. See that? And in the midst of it all, because you know that you know that God lives in you, because the evidence John has talked about, Jesus says, listen, and you can rest that the Son of God clings and holds to you. He is the one keeping you. Listen, how do we remain saved? How do we remain a child of God because of our goodness? Are you kidding me? Because he holds to us. And he clings to us. Listen, you want a verse to put on your refrigerator and recite every morning? Mark this thing down. Jude 1, 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's the work that Jesus is performing on your behalf constantly before the face of God Almighty. 
And that is why you may fall into temptation and you will and you will struggle with some of these sins that grip us. But ultimately you are not a slave to sin anymore. And you can fight it because there's victory in Christ. And you can claim the reality that the Son of God holds you and keeps you and will preserve you. And the devil has no authority in your life anymore. Isn't that good? Certainties. Certainties. We can know we have eternal life. We can know that God hears our prayers. We can know that we have victory over sin. Two more very quickly and we'll close and we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Absolute certainty number four is this. We can know that we belong to God. Verse 19, John says, we know that we are of God. We, we, we know that we are born of God. The word of is the idea of being born of. And here's why that's so important. It's an identity statement. That we don't have to search high and low in the world to find our identity and who we are. John says you can know that you belong to God. You are of God. You are of the family of God. And at the same time, he says this at the end of it, that's a statement that ought to grip our heart at the same time. But the whole world is lying in the power of the evil one. So in this little verse, there's a point of rejoicing for every child of God. And my identity is a child of God. But at the same time, every person in my life, every person in my sphere of influence, every person that does not know God is lying in the control of the evil one. Now watch this. You've been part of this church any amount of time. You probably have a little card somewhere in your Bible with three names on it. Praying for your three names. This is a reminder that those three names, unless they've come to know Jesus... They currently are lying in the control and the power of the evil one. That ought to wake our hearts up. You walk out of this building in just a few minutes, you're going to see a wall out there. It's been there. For, we keep it there. It's got names all over it. I hope you walk through that wall. Or not walk through that wall. That'd be crazy. Unless you're Hulk. <clears throat> you walk past that wall and you see those names and you go, you know what? Every name on that wall is currently lying in the power of the evil one. Satan has control of their lives. Those people in your life, God has led into your life to, to share Christ, to make Jesus known. Hopefully, maybe even take it on a share meal in a few weeks to be able to say, hey, Jesus saves. Without him, our hearts break that your life is in the power of the evil one. It's controlled by the power of the evil one. That's the state and the status of every person who doesn't know Christ. And at the same time, in this single little verse, he says, but, but us, the people of God, you belong to God. That is your identity. You are a child of God. The Bible says you are children of God. You're children of light. You're children of the day. You're called a believer. You're called faithful. You're called friends of Jesus. You're called saints. You're called holy ones. You're called witnesses, soldiers. You're called the light of the world. You're called the chosen of God, the ambassadors of Christ. You're called ministers and servants and disciples and heirs and joint heirs. You're called branches in the vine. You're members of the body of Christ. You're called living stones by which the very temple of God is built where God resides we are called living epistles living letters we are called beloved we are called followers we are called the people of God and that never changes ever so there's some certainties we build our life on we can know that we belong to God and then fifthly and we'll wrap it up as this with with this is we can know what is true? 
We're going to wrap it up with this, and then we're going to go into our time of the Lord's table. David Brewer is going to lead us through that in just a minute. But So I'm going to ask the team to come on up. I'm just kind of begin to play a little softly, but don't, don't check out on me. Stay with me here. We can know what is true. Now the word true here, the spirit behind the word true is not necessarily the idea of true versus false. It's more the spirit of reality versus unreality. In other words, in this world of constant unreality and myths and fakes and things that appear to be one thing but are something else, John says, listen, child of God, we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come. That's incarnational language. That's the idea that God has taken on flesh and walked among us. And God, through Jesus, He has explained who God is. We understand who God is because He's made Himself known to us through His Son, the the living Word, and the Bible, the written Word. God has made Himself known. We know what is true. And He's given us understanding, middle of verse 20, If you're here and you're a believer in the Son of God, it's not because you're smarter or wiser or better looking than the person down the street who doesn't know God. It's because God in His marvelous grace has opened your eyes to understand who Jesus is. And to see your own sin and your own desperation and the gap that is there. And the only way to bridge that gap is the person and work of Christ. If you understand that, it's because God has made it understandable to you. So that we may know who is true. Reality. In a world of smoke and mirrors, reality. The only way to understand the world we live in is through the reality that is Jesus. This is the true God. And this is eternal life. And then in one last little loving warning from John, he gets this verse 21 in. We know who Jesus is. We know He's the ultimate reality. He is love. He is light. He is life. He's all those things that we're looking for. But we live in a world of substitutes. And we live in a world of things that will claim and make promises to give us what only Jesus can give us. And we tend to take things that are even good in our lives and try to make good things God things. And we look to relationships and we look to people and we look to jobs and we look to these things that may be good and we try to, we want them to play the role that only Jesus can play in our lives. And by the way, it never works. And John says, listen, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Watch out for these things that make claims that they can never keep, that say they are who they are and they never are. And no, let God be God. Because he's the only one that can be. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that God hears and answers prayer. We can know that we can have victory over sin. We can know that we belong to God. And we can know in a world of falsehood what is absolutely true. God has made himself known to us. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and be reminded of the finished work of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. And then David Brewer, one of our elders, is going to guide us through the preparation for the Lord's Supper. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper as we walk through now. And remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.